This week on Teague Talks, we're going to feature one of the panels from the conference, the Wall Street panel with Michael Medzigian from Kerry Watermark, Neil Shaw from Hersha, Tyler Morris from MCR, and Scott Trabilko of Blackstone. These are some of the brightest minds in the industry, very connected, lots of money they're trying to spend, and I think it's fascinating to hear what they have to say. For those of you in attendance of the conference, thank you for making a great success. For those who were not there, we'll see you next year. This is exciting. There's people here, guys. Do you know what this is? This is called a conference. This is called a hotel convention. Thank you guys for being here. This is, well done. This is um, an eerie feeling and yet pure joy for the hotel industry that we're in, right? I mean, who thought we'd be here months ago, weeks ago? I, I didn't, I can say that, and I hosted this thing. So, uh, Teague Hunter, Michael Manzigi, and Kerry Watermark, Neil Shaw, uh, Tyler Morris, MCR, Scott Trabilco, Blackstone. Um, we have great conversations in the back. It's fun to get together with all these guys, so I'm glad that we can talk in front of you guys. Uh, I'm going to get their thoughts and opinions. Uh, before I go too far, I feel like I've got to pick on Tyler's shoes. <laughs> They're new. You wearing them just for us? Is this a whole new wardrobe? Well, you know, I feel like with the pandemic, the world got a little more casual. I mean, these are better than my slippers. <laughs> As they are. Is this the first time you've worn pants in a while? Well, pants is a heavy term. <laughs> um, you know, my pajamas, I consider pants. Anybody suit shrink in the closet over the pandemic? Is that why it feels so tight? That's why it feels so tight, yeah. Oh, in the closet. I have a tie. My father used to wear one of these. I thought it was novel. I thought I'd wear it today. I almost forgot how to tie it. It's cute, Dick. Thank you, guys. Just for you. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get going. I'm gonna, Michael, I'm going to start picking on you, I think, just because you're closest to me. But this has got to be exciting. When a guy, how many convention hotels do you own as a Wall Street guy? Quite a few. We've got probably, I think we've got five or six that are connected to convention centers, many in urban markets. So um, uh, it's a little different in New York, Chicago, San Francisco than it is down here in Florida. Do you, uh, that's a good question. That's a good point. What are you seeing? Does this excite you? Do you think the others are going to pick up or you oh, think yeah. it's going to take longer? I, I, you're early. We were talking in back. Um, I don't think we've seen a group this size in any of our hotels yet. So you're a trend center and thank you for that. But uh, it's coming. There's no question it's coming later this year. We had a little bit nostalgic and then I keep going, but we, um, I was, uh, talking with the staff, and they brought back 75 to 100 employees just for this conference. So when you want to know if you're having impact or if you're not, and when we walked in last night, I had half a dozen employees say, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the first time I've been back in a, over a year. So, right. So I, th I think my motivational speech soup soapbox is that we can do this. I'm hoping the message that everybody takes from this is let's go. Let's get out there. Let's put ourselves out there and let's go. Let's travel. Let's go back to the office. Let's, let's, we're in the industry. Somebody's got to go first. So let's go, right? Let's do it. Uh, Michael, what's your office look like? I mean, how crowded is it? Uh, we're 100%. We came back very early. I, uh, not everyone that works with me agreed, but... Uh, I felt that we needed to be in our seats collaborating to get through this, and we, uh, that's what we did. We had, you had to have some fits and starts and close a few times, but 
I'm a believer if the cities are going to get better, we've got to get companies back to work. I agree. Get back to the, I'm going to come back to the fits and starts too. But Neil, mm-hmm. you guys, publicly traded, what, is the, what does a corporate office look like for a publicly traded company? You know, we, we have like a, we have relatively decentralized setups. So we have four different offices. Um, we've had people in the offices from kind of the very beginning because we were, our hotels were uh, serving a lot of first responders. So we considered ourselves essential workers in most of our cities. It was okay to at least go to the office for the senior leadership. We didn't require anyone to go. Um, we found that in kind of late spring, early summer, we had maybe just the senior leadership, some finance and uh, deal folks back in the office. By the fall, we were probably at maybe 25% kind of of our regular kind of office workers, so more than our senior leadership, some kind of other levels. Um, and now in the spring, we're maybe getting close to about 50%. We still provide a lot of flexibility if people feel uncomfortable and the like, but we do find that um, that teams perform better, and especially our younger t- t- team members, they do like to have more um, kind of interaction with the rest of the organization and the like. So we're, we're about halfway there. Tyler, I'm skipping you. What? Because you'll talk plenty. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Scott, what does the Blackstone office look like? And what's John Gray's attitude? John never left the office. He's been, he's been there throughout pretty much, I think, uh, as have some others. But we took an approach of uh, really since Labor Day making it voluntary to come into the office. And we had a lot of volunteers. Um, I'd say it's probably been running at 75, 80% uh, since that time. It's flexible. So if, you're, if you've got something going on that you need to take care of, you can do that. It's very flexible. Um, and, you know, we've been lucky in that the firm really supported uh, people in terms of testing. We had great testing policies each week to enable you to go into the office. They helped with, uh, you know, junior people on the team getting to and from the office, help providing help in terms of transport to get there so they could avoid some of the public transport systems. So it's, I think it's helped the culture of the team. I think it would be nice to get everyone fully back in and able to socialize because I think the social element has been a little tricky when you're wearing masks and you're sort of in your little cubicles and when you get into a room, there's only so many people. So that part of it has been a bit of a challenge, but we're getting there. A lot of people are vaccinated now. So I think before long, uh, that will change. What I recall was John said after Labor Day, everybody come back. Let's go. We got to get back to business. You've had your vacation. Let's go. It wasn't much of a vacation, I don't think, for many, for many people. <laughs> I mean, we were at home, but I just remember, I'm based in LA and, uh, March and April last year, it was like 4.35 in the morning and there's a guy on my trading desk calling me saying that there's a debt bond trading in 10 minutes and we have to bid. And I'm like, okay, I'm not getting out of my pajamas. I'm going straight <laughs> to my desk and here we are trying to bid on a piece of debt. It was, it, was, it was crazy, but it was quite fun. How much stuff did you guys buy last year? So uh, in hotels, we bought in sort of March, April, 500 million of equities. Um, we sort of focused on three names that we really liked and believed in and we just kind of like focused our bet on those. So we, we, we bought and sold subsequently um, 500 million on the equity side, and then we did another two or 300 million of sort of equity investments into distressed debt. Um, and then collectively across kind of our group, we, we maybe did a couple of billion um, in sort of that m- period of market dislocation that really only lasted three or four weeks. Right. Yeah, and you're talking in that March, April timeframe, right? I mean, if you, you, if you missed it by a week, you kind of missed it. You missed it all. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Hi, right, Tyler. So our office is open 100%. Uh, 
um, and people are thrilled to be back in the office. Um, we took the approach, uh, I, I think, very early on that our team members, our hotels have been open the entire time, as I think everybody else's hotels have been in this room. And our front desk agents have been checking people in uh, and interacting with hundreds of people all day. So it wasn't particularly fair or appropriate that our corporate staff uh, could you know, say, hey, I don't want to come to the office. Our team members on, in the field uh, had to go to the office. So uh, we're back at 100%, and people are loving uh, being back in the office. Um, in New York City, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon has required everyone to go back in the office. Um, you know, publicly, you'll read some kind of nice, nice comments and stuff like that. But uh, on the side, he has said, everybody's back in the office. It's totally mandatory. How is the city? You're in the city. How is the city? The city, I'll tell you, Teague, in the last four weeks has seen a total sea change. It is amazing. The traffic is back in spades. So there are some funny problems that you see now because a lot more people are driving their own personal cars rather than taking public transit. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't find a parking space. Uh, they've just raised rates on parking spaces all over Manhattan. So there's the beginning of the inflationary cycle. Uh, it's going to start uh, in New York and spill out from there. Uh, but restaurants and bars are packed. They're at 75% today. I think next week they go to 100%. Uh, people are going clubbing again. I mean, game on. Uh, I call it revenge travel. People want to be out there. People want to be uh, at a conference like this. So, you know, uh, I have this kind of relationship with Teague. Don't give Teague credit for this conference. Uh, you guys should get credit for this conference. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I'll, I'll support that. For, you know, for being here, right? People are dying to get out of their basement and get out of their bunny slippers, um, right? Put on their new sneakers. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get a pair. Uh, I will say, I, I, as a, the decision maker for this conference, I had blind faith in you all, the attendee, and I, I want to mean that sincerely. I said to ourselves last year, even when we cancel it, there's still 500 people are going to show up at the marquee even after we canceled. And I felt it. It was, it was obvious. So kudos to you guys. And in our decision making, I mean, March was a gutsy decision, truly gutsy. I, I, we did math. I thought that the vaccines would be here. Uh, I felt very strongly that we needed to go first because we're in the hotel industry. If we were in the, I don't know, widget industry, I might have felt differently, but we wanted to come. And our first budgets, even as late as J January, were massive losses to host a conference because you spend twice as much doing it virtually, uh, all the social distancing, all the clear stuff, all of that. And I just said, I think someone has to do it. And be an entrepreneur, we can make crazy decisions. And I said, if I'm wrong, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is, but I believe in you guys. So from sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys for all showing up uh, to make this work. That's why it's a great industry, and I mean that. Okay, I gotta keep going. Neil, yeah. so stick it on New York. You're in, you, got, you own a bunch of assets yeah. in New York. Good idea, York, bad idea. Um, we have a lot of urban <laughs> assets. We're in uh, New York, Boston, Washington, Seattle, LA. Um, all of those markets have been very, very tough. You know, they were um, total lockdowns throughout last spring got kind of a little bit of a reprieve in the summer and you started to see at least enough essential workers and first responders and kind of the, f the first folks doing some kind of commercial activity in support of a reopening start to kind of 
perk up a little bit in the summer, but then the fall, if you remember, there was kind of another um, kind of reacceleration in case counts in these major urban cities, and the cities, the municipalities, got really conservative. Um, for better or for worse, there was lockdowns again in October, November, um, really up in California until just very recently. And so it was the cities, you know, you had a little bit of um, some optimism in the summer, but then the fall was really tough again. Uh, but starting in, um, I'd say like late January, early February, by the time of kind of, of the President's Day holiday, when you start to see this kind of major pent-up demand or revenge travel on the leisure side pick up, we have started to see um, in the cities, in New York, as well as all of these other cities, some leisure travel. So that's helping. Um, people are, you know, it's, it's hard to, for everyone to get to, uh, the key, to the Keys or to get to some beach um, destination close by and to find availability of stuff. There's just, even, if, even today, if you look around for where you might travel this summer with your family, it's hard to find things. And so we're starting to see the leisure market, leisure travelers starting to come back to the cities. They're coming for the bars, the restaurants. There's, Broadway hasn't reopened in New York, but there's all the off-Broadway, a lot of the other performing arts, outdoor has started again. Um, so we're now back up in New York to about 50% occupancy. Now, I would say a chunk of that is still first responders and government business, um, but we are getting some leisure to kind of come in. The business traveler um, is still slow to come back, uh, but they exist. You know, some of the, the large tech companies, there are folks traveling for it. A lot of salespeople um, in all industries, small and medium-sized business and entrepreneurs, they're traveling. So weekdays are starting to get better, but the first thing we're seeing in all these cities is the weekends are getting better as leisure comes back in. Um, and now we're waiting for the business traveler to really pick up. I think we'll see it this summer because it's right, there's JP Morgan's back, Goldman Sachs is supposed to be back in the office in early June. You're seeing more and more of the large employers really go back to the office, even if it's not kind of 100% of them, but if it's even 50% of them, that leads to, to some more movement. Um, so we're encouraged by what we're seeing this summer, but we expect that it will really be, I think we're going to see this kind of pent-up demand we're seeing in leisure today. We'll see it on the business side in these major gateway markets starting this fall and throughout next year. Even if we don't get back, you know, the economist comments I thought were excellent earlier today, um, and the expectation for business travel not to rebound until 2024, I think that's still fair, but I think that right now it's really, we're at 10, 20% kind of occupancy in these cities during the weekdays. For that to go from 20 to 60% is gonna be pretty fast, and I think that's gonna happen this year. What, what, what's this, I'm coming to you, what's the statement, Ben? What's the statement we've all said? If you haven't booked your travel between Memorial Day and Labor Day, you're too late? Come to the cities. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Neil, I'll take the under on that. I think business travel is going to come back with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I describe it not as business traveler and, and leisure travel, uh, but as white collar and blue collar. Mm -hmm. uh, that defined COVID, at least for our portfolio. Uh, blue collar has been out traveling on the road the entire time. Mm -hmm. And that's management of blue collar businesses. Yeah. Right? So Design and construction, project management. Project business. Yeah. Um, you know, factories, medical centers. There was still quite a bit of construction going on. Yeah. The engineers, the architects, all those folks were out there. Uh, it's the, the white collar 
workers. The problem is they work for a lot of big companies, the Googles and the Microsoft. And whenever you get a general counsel and a head of HR together in the same room, <laughs> they conspire to kill travel. Uh, <laughs> right between uh, legal liability and you know, uh, what do the employees want? Like, well, listen, you got to go see your customers. So I think it's going to absolutely uh, explode yeah. on the upside. Largely Neil, because though, it's, it's going to take time. I disagree. Uh, because, well, the thing that will take time is to get the airplanes back in the air. Um, right now, I think the number is about 55% of the metal is flying around, mm -hmm. right? That will take a while to get back in the air. But I've been traveling multiple times a week for the past few months. Every plane I've been on, there's not been one available seat. Prices are going through the roof. I'm paying 175 bucks a day for a rental car. South Florida hotels are getting crazy rates. Uh, I mean, you're seeing a massive wealth redistribution here as well. People are taking the unemployment money and spending it in our hotels, uh, which is fine. Uh, you know, it's better than no business at all. That's why weekends are better than uh, weekdays, um, yeah. right? So that will keep going through uh, while well, unemployment uh, is still going through September. Uh, and then yeah. we'll get, I think, some white collar back. Mm -hmm. But I think the reason we're going to get the white collar back is because uh, the competitive nature of human beings, and particularly Americans. Now, I'm really just referring to domestic versus international. But domestically, um, what, if you're off the road, if you're watching this thing virtually, uh, I think it separates the ambitious from the unambitious. Mm -hmm. The ambitious want to go close that deal. They want to go get that client. They want that piece of business. And you just can't get it via Zoom. Nobody's ever closed a deal via Zoom. Yeah. Right? Zoom has been a, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, it, it's a better alternative than not talking to people. That's right. If you can't travel, uh, but you want to go see people. What, what did we hear? I think it was Dave Johnson that even said on one of my Teague Talks, did not mean to bring that up. But he said, I had, I had, I had a sales call. It was investment bankers. and. Two of them did Zoom, and one of them came to see me. Who do you think got the business? We raised $450 million to get through the pandemic, and uh, this was early on. This was last year, and one got on a plane. They got the deal. That's not why they got the deal, but it didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. And um, to the economist's point, though, if you have existing relationships, it was amazing to see how much commerce did get done while the world was shut down. I mean, it was shocking, right? Yeah. Like, I, we, did, we did this unsecured notes kind of raise a few months ago, and uh, in that, we actually didn't meet anyone live. And the team that we ended up doing the deal with, the Goldman Sachs Merchant Bank, it was with an individual that we didn't, we had never met before. But it was a, an institution that we had a long-term relationship, and, um, and as a public company, I think we have a little bit more kind of transparency and clearance kind of clarity we can offer the marketplace. But I have been amazed by how much can get done virtually, at least in transactions. And so I, I do think business travel will be a little different. Like we used to, in the public markets, we would spend a lot of time going to different cities around the United States and then signing into the security office, you know, security desk um, at every building. And we'd have nine meetings all across Manhattan and you'd be kind of running around and going up and down elevators to, you know, it's going to be unlikely that we will do those kinds of investor conferences um, or 
kind of, we'll do the conferences, but we're probably not going to do kind of days where you're going to multiple different kind of buildings because you could kind of do it virtually with everyone in one place. So I think there will be a change, but I think that, um, I think that to get most deals done and get the economy going, I think we're seeing it already. Um, so many business, to your point, like where, who do you do business with? These days, like all of the deal flow that you're starting to really see happen. People are visiting the hotels. We sold six hotels. We had 20, 30 tours per hotel, and this was back in last fall. So I think if you want something and you're aggressive and you're ambitious, people are moving around. What if the pandemic happened in 1992? <laughs> before cell phones and before Zoom, right? It should just make everybody feel better that this pandemic could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Well, I feel good now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody would have known there was a pandemic and we would have kept on our way. Maybe. <laughs> the contrapositive <laughs> always makes you feel better. Yeah. I don't know. I think Zoom's going to impact. Scott, ask your opinion. I think Zoom's going to, the internal travel will go to Zoom. The external sales call will still be face-to-face. I think there's, there's absolutely some structural loss that has to occur. I mean, you talk to anyone. I mean, I personally, there's at least one of the 10 trips that I used to take that I'm not going to take anymore. And I don't know if it's one or it's five, but it's probably somewhere in between. But I think to, to counter that, there's a lot of economic activity that's happening and coming out of this. A lot of companies have created a lot of wealth. There's a lot of new companies that are being created. And historically, if you look over time, business travel has grown, grown at two times real GDP. And so if, if you think about that and the explosion that's happened in terms of stimulus and wealth creation and business activity, the catch-up will happen, I think, faster. So there'll be a loss to start with, but then you'll slowly catch up over time. Couple that with the fact that everyone's just more mobile these days. Companies are more decentralized. People are having more flexibility around their jobs. I think that lends itself to more travel, more trips as well. So I think you put it all in the pot, I think it's going to be okay. A little bit like our cell phones, right? I mean, we didn't slow down with the cell phones. We only worked twice as much. That's right. Right? All right, Michael, I'm picking on you. You opened the door a minute ago, so I'm, I'm jumping through. You talk about raising capital to stay afloat, to stay alive in the depths of it. So if you don't mind, Sharon, tell us what your, some of your darkest moments were okay, as dark, a corporate owner during the pandemic. Darkest moment. So we, we, um, all of our hotels are urban and resort. Resorts are good today. Uh, but they weren't last year. Uh, there was a period where everything was empty. So we went from 75% uh, occupancy in February of 20 to 4%. Uh, this is a $5 billion portfolio. We were 4% by April. Uh, I was hired by Lazard a couple decades ago to do the biggest real estate workout in history, and that was nothing compared to this. It was like this train coming at you that you couldn't stop. So I think our first month, we lost $50 million. Um, Teague asked me before if there was ever a moment if I thought we were just going to lose the whole thing, which that's not the case. But we did, we did sell the first hotel to sell in the United States post-COVID, which was the weirdest thing because buyers couldn't go look at it. Um, they, you couldn't hire an engineer or an environmental firm or anyone else who was willing to go see it. But we pulled it off. I don't, I, but everything we did at that moment in time was so hard and took so much brain power. Uh, the hardest, hardest moment of it all when it was all becoming apparent what was about to happen, I was at our resort in the Florida Keys, a place called Hawks Cay, and the Keys were on fire. There was no COVID down there as far as they were concerned. And uh, I think we were running like 85% occupancy, and they closed the Keys. They said, if um, 
you weren't a resident, you had to get out, they were closing the road. And we had to send all our visa workers back to their country of origin, they couldn't be in the United States. Um, uh, we had to close the hotel, I was the last person to leave, and I, w I was going to my car, and the general manager and a bellman looked at me and said, Mr. Medzigian, we look, back, look, look forward to when we can welcome you back. And I knew at that moment what was about to happen. That, you know, we proceeded to furlough thousands of people. And it, it, you, know, you had to be strong and lead through this whole thing, but it, was, uh, it, was, it destroyed you inside. So uh, that was harder than the financial part, seeing what it was doing to the individuals. Uh, yeah, I can be, believe it. And we're all good people. We want to help good people. Mm -hmm. Neil, same question. You know, um, I'd say it's probably, I, I, I hate to be so unoriginal, but like I remember that moment so much because we were, a big part of our portfolio is Miami Beach and, and the Keys as well. And Miami Beach also got closed down that time, like late May, right, after, right before Memorial Day. And then Key West went down a week or two later. These were the only properties that were cash flowing in the por portfolio, the only place that we had already started to bring back full team members to our hotels. Um, and that was a real kind of uh, punch to the stomach. Um, our optimism, I think we tried to be, you know, once this hit, you first were in disbelief for a while, then it was urgency to kind of get things, batten the hatches and shut things down. But then by late spring of last year, we were really um, trying to be courageous and optimistic and get things moving again. Um, but that kind of, so, you know, I could say it was that beginning of the summer or beginning of the fall. There was another, again, that kind of like pullback, which really made it difficult. And it just made it clear that some of the people that were on furlough were no longer going to be furloughs. And they were, there was going to be some more terminations and the like. And, and that was hard. It was, I think, a 70, 75% reduction in our total operating expenses, which is people. Um, and that didn't start to feel better until January, February of this year, um, where now everyone, it's become very popular to complain about how hard it is to, to find people to serve our guests, but man, is it better than struggling to find customers. Um, and um, and it's, it is a struggle, but, but it's getting better. But I, I would point well, to that kind of period of pullback. And if I may, Teller, yeah. come to you. But if I may, you're yeah. publicly traded. So, you're, yeah. oh, by the way, your stock price went from $15, $16 to two and a half. That's right. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I think our stock price dropped by like 80%. Um, and unfortunately, how the math works, you know, like to come back, you have to grow even more than the 80% to get back to normal. Um, there's a lot of talk like in the, um, among analysts uh, in the industry that uh, REITs are priced to perfection and they've come back. That's not necessarily the case for the whole industry. I think there are some names, some of our peers that are trading above where they were pre-pandemic. We're still 20, 30% below pre-pandemic, below the R19 kind of uh, stock price. And, and I think one, one thing that's important to remember that 19 wasn't a great year in lodging. You know, the, the peak of lodging for a lot of markets, like we're big in Miami and New York and these major gateways, the peak really was 2015 in those markets. And so 2019, getting back to 2019, it's gonna be a slog, it's gonna be challenging, but I think it's very important for people to remember that we're gonna recover to 19, then we're gonna get well beyond 19 as an industry and as owners and operators in this space. Uh, as we look at our portfolio, it's almost 15, 20% below peak 
19 was 15, 20% below peak. Um, so, so I think that that's really where the street may be. Um, uh, you know, I won't speak for us because we are still deeply discounted. So I think the street has, us, has it completely wrong. But uh, for others that might be trading at levels that look kind of similar to where they were before, I think you have to remember that public companies are valued based on the expected value of cash flows over time. And over time is forever. So one year of really bad stuff, which was last year, isn't really on the minds of Wall Street investors looking forward. They're looking for these next few years. And the industry generally, at least across the last two to three cycles, the first three to four years of a cyclical recovery, public hotel REITs do trade at a significant premium to, um, to private markets, kind of at least 15 to 20 times kind of multiples on some expected cash flow. Um, so I think that's the rationale behind pricing coming back is that the worst is behind us and the fundamental kind of setup today is so much better than it ever was in 2019 because we're on a clear upswing, major stimulus, less supply than there ever has been, um, and, and arguably a better margin kind of model, a better operating model for this coming cycle. Um, I think that's what gives the street confidence. Tyler, I will not ask you about uh, what you think of Neil's stock price is too high or too low. <laughs> I think it's a terrific buy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I won't ask you your deepest dark. We need Scott to express his view, too. <laughs> <laughs> they move markets. <laughs> uh, but Tyler, you were one of the, you're an optimist, so I won't ask you your deepest, darkest moments in the pandemic either. You're an optimist. You were arguably last year the most aggressive buyer out there. I know it's your structure, I know your private equity, I understand you were raising money hand over fist, but I think Guts, your attitude was 10% discount, I'll take it. I'm not sure I would say 10% discount, I take it, but uh, we did buy a lot. We bought 30 hotels um, during the pandemic. Um, JLL said we were the most active firm in America. Easily. So uh, I have a couple of colleagues here who uh, did a terrific job. Uh, we don't over lever our uh, hotels. So by the end of April, we had all of our debt worked out and we were 100% playing offense. Uh, so, you know, when um, the old saying goes, when somebody gives you lemons, make lemonade, uh, we bought a software company uh, right in the teeth of the pandemic, uh, Hotel PMS. And uh, we bought, it's a long tortured story involving the Trump administration and the CFIUS action and all this kind of stuff. But um, we were a very happy customer of this hotel PMS at our TWA hotel. Uh, and I called the seller and I said, hey, I'll buy the company. He said, what do you know about software? I said, nothing, uh, but I'm a very happy customer. Uh, and it was COVID um, and the software thinks of the world as 24 pieces of inventory per day instead of one piece of inventory per day. Every other uh, hotel PMS system thinks of the world as one unit of inventory per night, and you can't sell the same piece of fruit twice, right? And the reason why that matters is so we spent a lot of time saying, hey, we own this real estate. How do we maximize the value of the real estate? It's by selling different day parts. Uh, so at our airport hotels, we sell day stays. You sell pool reservations. You sell 
fitness reservations. You, you can break your asset into more pieces uh, and more products and allows you to monetize that instead of just the, you know, 189 bucks, all you can eat buffet, right? So you can break your asset into pieces. Um, so I think that's going to be another one of the positives that comes out of COVID uh, is people had time to think about things mm -hmm. like this. So Usually you run around like a chicken with your head cut off and you'd never actually put all this together. Uh, we had time to put this together. So at our TWA hotel, we'll run, even right now as we speak, uh, we're running about 85% occupancy, but 10% of those, 10 of those percentage points are day stays. Hmm. Uh, and that number, I think, will go to 30 or 40% of inventory. That's great. Have you been able to stick with the, I remember you were courageously going to go zero OTA. I caved. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but it was, it was great. And I, great gave, I gave it the old college try. No, no, and then, and then I got gazoomed yeah. by COVID. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I held out until COVID. Yeah. Um, I did try. No, that's good. No, no, it's good. Are you still you charging prepay? 100%. When Everybody get that? Go. When you book on TWAhotel.com, we charge in full uh, right then. Just like when you buy an airplane ticket on American Delta or United, and they charge you in full, and then we have a um, modification fee or a cancellation fee. Why the hotel industry writ large gives people a free option uh, to book, unbook, book, unbook, and then uh, not get paid. Um, somebody told me the other day, and I haven't confirmed this, but that both Hilton and Marriott don't actually have uh, mids, right? We, the owners, have mids. Uh, the merchant ID terminals, they don't, they don't charge you to make a reservation, right? That's crazy. The airlines certainly do. They just charge you over and over and over again. Um, so, but rethinking about those pricing aspects uh, of the hotel business, uh, I th hopefully will be a nice uh, outcome coming out of this. Uh, and then we can get our guests to pay. It's, it's a lot easier to manage your inventory uh, if you know who's coming and there's some teeth in it and they can't cancel on you on 48 hours notice or 72 hours notice. Mm -hmm. Let's get Tyler off his software company. Then. <laughs> <laughs> totally, next. Let's talk capital. Scott, there's tons of capital out there. Oh, by the way, the government's printed $7 trillion. Blackstone raises more money than anybody. What are you guys doing with it? Not buying hotels at the moment. We've Why been, not? We've been trying. I mean, we just have had uh, an inability to compete on some of, these, some of these deals that we've seen out there. I mean, the truth is, I think everyone's been disappointed with the lack of flow of hotel deals. Um, I think everyone thought this is the biggest shock to the system that we've ever seen. And how are people going to survive? And people have survived one way or another. A lot of it's through capital being provided either from stimulus, privately. Um, and people, because of that, have been hanging on and have not been forced sellers in, in, many, in many situations. I think at a smaller scale, I mean, Tyler has bought 30 deals kind of one by one. That's not really how we're set up. And so on, a, on the larger institutional scale deals, there really haven't been a lot of opportunities other than some of these rescue capital deals where people have stepped in and, and provided solutions for people. Now what you're seeing is tons more capital has formed in the space. A lot of non-traditional investors have come into the hotel space. Everyone thought there was going to be a ton of distress. So more pools of capital formed. Now they've all got to prove that they raise money for a reason, and so they're all out doing it. We have the benefit of, you know, our funds aren't specific to a certain 
uh, asset class. So we can kind of like move around based on where the opportunity is. So you know, we, I mean, we we deployed six or seven hundred million through the liquid security space. Uh, we announced the take private of extended stay along with Starwood uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and beyond that, we've done a couple of single asset deals, but that's about it in hotels. It, it feels well, like, though, don't, don't you think in the last couple of weeks, it feels like some of that more quality assets are coming out? Yeah, because... Maybe the, but, not, but not at distressed prices. Not, it's the opposite. Because, in fact, there's so much capital forming around themes. And the themes have really been, you know, leisure-focused for the most part, which is a theme that, I mean, we love. We'd love to buy more leisure-focused assets. Um, but people are paying, arguably, above pre-COVID levels. And business is good, but it's still a ways to get back. Even for the most bullseye leisure asset, maybe in April in Miami, yes, you beat 2019. But when it comes to September in Miami or October or November, I'm not sure if you're going to be 2019 on a consistent basis going forward because we have this real travel bump. And I mean, spring break, I was trying to find an Airbnb in the state of California uh, to take my family, and I, and I literally couldn't find something. I was trying to book it two days before. Shame on me. But I mean, it's that type of environment where there's just not a lot of choices for people. I think, you know, just to balance that, and maybe this is because it's. Um just on the deal activity and the deal availability right now. I do think if, um, not for big portfolio deals, but, but on these kind of single asset deals, you know, we were sellers on six hotels. Three of them went, or seven hotels, three of them went to um, alternative uses, so they were converted into apartments or converted into uh, a, a different asset class, mainly apartments, maybe with some retail in them. But the other three w did go to hotel buyers that were generally private equity-backed kind of buyers. They were not distressed pricing at all, um, but they were, I'd say, a 15% kind of discount to pre-COVID pricing. They were hotels that um, didn't have much cash flow burn. So then for that new investor coming in, they were going to make a 15, 20% kind of return on the deals. They were high quality markets. They were Washington, D.C., great, great locations. And those deals got done. Um, they got done like in, in between November and February of last year. So it was a four or five month kinds of processes. Um, I mentioned that just to, to mention that deals are getting done. They're probably not nearly the volume that it was before, but I don't think people should be discouraged about the transactions environment. On our sister company, our operating um, partners, HHM, who you'll see, I think Naveen and Sean Tooley are in the house, and Mike Murray and uh, Dave McCaslin are in here, but they've been very busy. They've bought seven hotels since um, last September. Um, single asset transactions, but they were 50 to $100 million deals, independent resorts in kind of resort markets, and they were still discounts to kind of stabilize levels of value, but they required some work. You know, you had to be a strong operator. And I just think that you're in an environment today, and I think especially in the next six to eight months, there are a lot of fatigued owners out there. Um, and for them to kind of hold on and then build back up to a kind of you know, the next three years, it's hard to do. And so, and sometimes it's hard for the owner, but it's clearly hard for the lender. The lenders have been very understanding and cooperative um, for the last year or so. And I think we're getting to a point where there's gonna be fatigued owners, fatigued lenders, and you're gonna see a lot more transaction activity. 
I think it's very Neil, robust. Do you mind? Yep. We, Scott and I were at a meeting in Miami a week ago, uh, AHLA meeting, and uh, we had the head of one of the big special servicers, and I did kind of everything I could to get him to talk about why they weren't foreclosing. They're just not. And as far as he was concerned, they're not going to. Now, I don't know if that's right or not, but um, that's why it just feels like if you're going to buy something right now, it's not going to be distressed pricing. It's it gonna won't be, be distressed, yeah. But it will be, I think, I think what they're waiting for, and it's very logical and rational, and it was kind of the same last cycle too, is that if they know there's a recovery coming and they can get par in September or October. And they don't have to pay the cash losses along the way. Yeah, because it's getting better. Things are getting better, you know, and then they're like, yeah, we'll keep them borrower. And then in September, they'll tell the borrower, hey, what do you want to do? We have to get paid back. And they don't want to do that. They're not pushing that case until, because they don't want to take a discount on their note or on their kind of loan, because there's no incentives for them to do that. Um, so that's what I'm hearing from them is like once we can get to a place where our loan is in the money, 95 to 100 cents on the dollar, then we'll start to see transactions. So that's, again, that's like a 20% discount, 15 to 20% discount to value. Equity gets kind of loses the value, but they, got it, they held on and maybe they'll recover. But the ones that aren't recovering in like this you know, kind of hockey stick fashion in the fall, I think those will become available. What well, I think well, to Neil's point, uh, I mean, all these things are tied together with capital formation that Scott brought up. Uh, I think one of the what's happened in COVID is there is so much money out there. Yeah. Uh, the increase in M2, the uh, secondary money supply, is staggering over the past 24 months, mm -hmm. mostly because of the tech IPOs. So when Snowflake goes public, uh, it was a private company, so you can't leverage an investment in a private company, a venture capital style investment. Goes public, it's worth 100 billion. All of a sudden, you know, United States capitalism is effectively a 15% reserve requirement. So it's a seven times multiple. That just created $700 billion of investable assets, hmm. right? Because now you can leverage against your mm -hmm. Snowflake shares. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally people put 10% in real estate and you put some proportion of that in hotels. Mm -hmm. Right. So, well, add add to that crypto, which crypto. I think just now surpassed the entire amount of U.S. dollars in circulation now in the right. crypto market. Right. Is that so, right? That's right. I mean, I was actually I was taking an Uber to the airport last night, and uh, my Uber driver told me that he bought four computers three years ago to mine crypto, and he set them up in Iceland, and in six months he's now getting delivered. The four computers cost him thirteen thousand dollars, and six months he gets 10 bitcoins which are now worth 600,000. And so he said he's going to go and take that, he's now going to start a bitcoin mining company in the mountains of Arizona. And that was after the day before I'd been driving around with a Uber driver who while was waiting for me to go in and out of a hotel when I got back in, he was playing on his crypto account. And there's something happening here which is, uh, was not happening 12 months ago. But it's creating a lot of wealth and a lot of money in the system in addition to everything else that's been it's created. Just M2 being created out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Crypto didn't exist before. Snowflake didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. Apple has gone from being worth a trillion to three trillion. That's now just all leverageable uh, wealth. Wealth, yeah. Right, and a portion of that is finding its way back into real estate. So if you're a lender, 
why take a discount to par? Yep. Right? A lot of equity guys are holding on for the same reason and feeding the losses because mm-hmm. they think they're going to get made whole maybe via inflation, mm-hmm. uh, maybe be government stimulus program. What we are going to have is a lot of undercapitalized assets coming out of this because mm-hmm. we're basically going to have had two years with most people investing no money yep. into their assets. That's right. And I think that's going to come back and create a bit of a, a transaction cycle. Because as we've always seen, people who get to the pip, and they're like, you know what, shall I do the pip? Or shall I sell it to the next guy? I'll sell it to the next guy. Here it's like the pip on steroids because everyone's emptied their FF&E reserves. They're going to have 18 months to refill it. And they're going to say, you know what, I don't want to refill it. I'm going to let the next guy do that. And I mm-hmm. think that will create not a distress selling cycle, but I think a lot of transaction volume that will come into the market. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from a transaction standpoint, last year, you know, s- sellers would take a 10% discount, which Tyler was happy with. Buyers wanted a 40% discount, and that meant no transaction. Okay, it was all 2020. The gap was as large as we've ever seen it. Uh, today, really starting in 2021, uh, I think for the right assets, there is no discount. Okay, it's 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, there are some distress coming. I think Neil said, is right. Said the broker. Said the broker, it's 100 cents on the dollar, and, and, and if Blackstone is the Take seller, it it's, 100, well, it's going it, to 110 cents. the really high end where we want to buy, there's no discounts. There's no discount. If we yeah. want to buy a resort, it's, right. it's there's no discount. two million a room is the new, I guess, normal. Unless it needs to be fixed. Unless it needs some capital or it needs a change or, because that requires someone to dig into their pocket, I think, well, to, to that To 15. Scott's point, the, the opportunities of the undermanaged. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's... People that's, should dabble in fine art. People should dabble in fine wines. People should not dabble in hotels, mm-hmm. but they do. Mm-hmm. And those <laughs> are the opportunities that will continue to be out there. Mm-hmm. You know, the Grand Wailea, no one dabbles in owning the Grand Wailea, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope someone does. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, this is great. We got, we got four minutes left. Um, so sort of final thoughts, but I think this is, is fantastic stuff. Uh, I hope you guys will agree, but I just think there's lots of capital. I see the distress coming in September, uh, but it's going to be the have nots. There's a bifurcation of have and have nots. The have nots, if it's broken, if there's something there, a full service suburban hotel, sure. Half price, but the things that everybody wants, there's, there's no little to no discounts. Well, the, the other thing that we didn't talk about is the melding of all of the food groups. Yep. Uh, there's no such thing as multifamily, and that's hotel, uh, and that's uh, vacation rental. Uh, they're all kind of merging together. Uh, multifamily zoning uh, codes are changing mm. city by city as Airbnb keeps pushing their legislation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Airbnb is effectively just an OTA. I went on Airbnb <laughs> and Googled New York uh, City the other day. And of the top eight entries, five were hotel rooms. Yeah, we're using it. Right, so are we. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these things are all just melding together. So now on one site, you can get a vacation rental for two weeks and pay you know, 10 or 20,000 bucks. You can get a Spring Hill Suites for 89 bucks, right? And everything in between. Mm-hmm. So. I was gonna, uh, I, w- I thought you were gonna go in another direction. I think that's a very good point, Tyler. But an- another thing, I think, if we think of the different cycles, like how Wall Street has changed, I think last cycle was, or this cycle will be marked as the one that, may- maybe it was last cycle, where select service became investable, institutional, 
There was multiple REITs playing in that space, multiple large private equity firms and owner operators uh, like you all. That was in the last cycle. This cycle, I think we'll continue to see that because we saw just a complete night and day difference between levels of cash burn, between kind of select service and full service hotels. Um, and independent hotels actually performed very well this cycle. And so I think those things may be something we'll see more of um, as we go, go forward. I think this cycle also highlighted the uh, kind of entrepreneurial operators, how much better they were able to manage cash flows. And that was a big divergence among the REITs, how many were brand managed versus franchisee managed and how much they burned cash accordingly. So I think that will be another big thing for this coming cycle, which I think everyone in this audience knows very, very well, but I think it's gonna be more appreciated, respected, and um, invested in by Wall Street. Well, then there's the replacement cost as well, uh, which is going through the roof. Yeah, what's going to happen, yeah. Tyler? Well, 200,000 is the new 100,000 a key. Uh, when I first got into this business, um, I worked for a guy named Barry Sternlicht. We looked at a deal in downtown San Francisco that was a pristine, unbelievable uh, Kimpton Hotel, and they wanted 100,000 a door. And he said, that's crazy. That's insane. <laughs> Forget about it. No way. I'm paying 100 grand a door. Same asset has traded for 400 and 600 since then. Uh, you know, you can't build a residence in now for under 200,000 a key. That number used to be 150 mm -hmm. and 10 years ago it was 100. And I always tell people, it's, people say, oh, the cost of materials, cost of plywood go up. No, uh, you know, it, it trades on some commodity markets. Labor goes up a little bit, but it's scope creep from government agencies. There's more safety protocols. Uh, there's larger footprints in the parking lot so the fire truck can go around the building. Uh, there's more fire sprinklers. There's more carbon monoxide sensors. There's more fire exits. That, sh that scope creep is what causes the construction cost to go up. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the per annum rate is 8 to 9% per year. Construction has gone up. It's just been a straight line since the year 2000. And that could be even more this time, because this time lumber prices really are going up. And, by, skilled, and skilled labor is not around. That's right. I think like for your portfolio, but do you, you must think about, do you, sell, do you consider selling any hotels in your portfolio? Because I would think like Key Biscayne and no. Hawks K. Wait, these we, are probably, would you consider them a couple million dollars a key now or a million and a half? Or? If we were to sell them? Yeah. I would assume so. I mean... Yeah, they're numbers Santa that we Barbara, didn't even think Santa about. Santa Barbara, five, it took them 30 years. years to get the entitlements for our Ritz there. Uh, mm -hmm. What's it cost to build something like that? I don't know. So, right. yeah, those, those are not assets that we would sell. Well, it is interesting, though, that commodities are going up, the stock market's going up, hotel values are going up, crypto. We've seen this before. I know 19, you're an optimist, but... It's early cycle. That's why we're, we've seen it before. <laughs> 1974, 13% interest rates in your passbook checking account. Right? It's coming soon. <laughs> I think we got four or five years for that. <laughs> well, we'll see if inflation helps us this time, now that we have technology. It's the one thing that is good for lodging relative to real estate. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm welcoming inflation, I think. Yeah, we um, reprice every day. Yeah, that's it's the... Well, we used to. Every hour now, Tyler. Yeah. That's every right. hour. <laughs> every hour. <laughs> Uh, we got to go. We're going to get thrown out of here. Uh, clock's blinking. Uh, thank you, guys. Please help me thanking them for joining me so we could talk forever. Thank you, guys.